Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Hal Goodwin's The Lost City, Volume 3, Chapter 8, The Fight in the Warehouse. What'd you do that for? Scotty demanded furiously. They had knives, Rick explained. He held onto Scotty's arms. Getting yourself cut up wouldn't solve anything. They used knives, Chada supplied. They kill quick. I know those men. Let's get out of here, Rick said. We can find a cop and bring him back. Scotty followed as he led the way out of the alley. The ex-marine was grumbling, but he realized the senselessness of getting into a brawl. Far down the road, they found one of the youthful-looking policemen. He listened to Chada's story, then went back with them. He took a firm grip on his club and pushed open the door. Rick and Scotty crowded in after him. But the room was empty. Back here, Scotty said. He made his way through the tables to the door through which the second man had entered. It's no use, Scotty. They're gone, Rick said. The policeman shrugged. Chada interpreted. He is sorry, but if those men are gone, there is nothing he can do. Yeah, I guess not, Rick agreed. Thank him anyway, Chada. The policeman bowed and went back to his post. Rick looked helplessly at Scotty and Chada. What can we do now? Nothing, Scotty replied gloomily. We can go back to the hotel and tell the professors what happened. They can notify the council in the morning. Maybe Chada can lead a police squad back here again, but I don't think they'll find anything. Outside in the alley, it was almost fully night now. Here and there, streetlights penetrated the falling gloom, but most places were dark. Rick looked around for a Gary, but there were none in sight. Their own driver foolishly had been paid and told to go on. Gary's didn't haunt this section, where no one had money enough for fare. Well, we may as well walk back, he suggested. Chada spoke up. It is not far, and we walk in the middle of the street, yes? Then no one jump us from doorways with knives. Well, you're a cheerful little kid, ain't you? Scotty remarked. How old are you, Chada? Maybe fifteen, maybe sixteen. I am not sure. Well, that's pretty young to know so much about thieving truck drivers, Rick said jokingly. Chada considered. Maybe so, but it is the same in India as in America. Most peoples is young before they grow up. That's the wisdom of the Orient we've heard about, Scotty grinned. In America, when they count noses in 1920, is 33,600,000 little kids under 14 years of age. That is what it says in the Almanac, Chada announced. Both boys burst out laughing. You're going to be handy to have around, Scotty laughed. You know more about America than we do. This is one smart cookie, Chada agreed, showing his white teeth in a pleased grin. They had reached Crawford Market again. Here in the narrow shop-lined streets, vendors plied their wares. Torches flared, augmenting the feeble glow of the few electric lights. The flickering light, dust-choked air, and the teeming turbaned or fezzed mob in their gay rags reminded Rick once more of a scene from the Arabian Nights. Look at that crowd over there, Scotty said. Buying food, I guess. Rick looked where his friend pointed and saw a dozen men haranguing an elderly man in a black fez behind a stand. There was much waving pans and much loud language as they bartered. He grinned at the scene, so different from 
any that might be found in America. Then his grin froze. Beyond the vendor's stand, a man was standing in a doorway. A man in a shiny black hat and a shiny frock coat. He wore tight white trousers and his feet were bare. The man turned and Rick got a good look at his face and he clutched at Scotty's arm. Over there in the doorway, Rick whispered. The Parsi who took our equipment. Scotty's eyes sought the doorway. You're right. He started to push his way through the crowd. No, 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 easy, Rick pleaded. Don't let him see you. But it was too late. The Parsi stopped in the act of wiping his face and stared right at them. Then he just melted into the crowd. He saw us, Rick groaned. We can't follow him into that mob. Chada tugged at his sleeve. If I follow, you give me job? Yeah, Rick agreed. Yeah, but hurry, okay? Wait at hotel, Chada instructed, and he was gone into the throng. There's a lad who's right up on the ball. He waits until he gets you into a corner, then he holds you up, Scotty remarked. Well, it's only natural, Rick said. He's never had anything, so when he sees a chance to get ahead, he grabs at it the only way he knows how. Well, he is a lockable little cuss, Scotty commented. Isn't it funny the way he pops up with all that strange dope out of the world almanac? But it's kind of touching, too. Imagine living in a land where the only book you can get is a copy of the world almanac. They passed out of Karnak Road into Mahatma Gandhi Road and found a gari at the curb. In a few moments, they were rolling down the wide streets of modern Bombay to the hotel. As they entered the creaky elevator, Scotty asked, You think we ought to tell the professors? Rick thought it over and then shook his head. No, they're already upset enough. No point in getting them excited until we have something definite to report. There was no light on in the professor's room, but as they tiptoed past, the door opened and Zircon came out. There you are, boys, he said. He looked and sounded tired, his big shoulders slumping. Julius and I went to the Geographical Union. They were most sympathetic, but there was nothing they could do. Then we went to the jail with Captain Marks and tried to get Meekin to talk. He rubbed his forehead as though his head ached painfully. Poor Julius. He became hysterical. I think he would have tried to beat the information out of Meekin if I hadn't restrained him. It's obvious the man knows nothing of value. I finally brought Julius home and gave him a sedative. He's sleeping quietly now. You'd better get some sleep yourself, sir, Rick urged. You look tired out. I am, Zircon admitted, but I find it hard to sleep. So much depends on recovering that equipment. So much. His voice trailed off and he nodded a good night, then went back into his room. Rick looked at Scotty, his eyes troubled. Let's wash up and go down and keep watch for Chada. Looks like he's our only hope now. Right, Scotty agreed. I have a hunch he'll come through for us, though. I like that little guy. He's right on his toes. Later, as they walked down by the seawall, Rick said thoughtfully, Well, one thing is sure. Whoever's behind all this doesn't want the equipment. Otherwise, Meekin wouldn't have tried to destroy it. What does that add up to? Scotty wanted to know. Well, the Conway, whoever he is, is trying to stop the experiment. 
Well, that's reasonable. But why? Scotty asked. If I could figure that out, Rick said wearily, I'd tell Sherlock Holmes to move over and I'd set up a detective business. They had walked in a circle and were back at the hotel. Want to go upstairs and rest? Rick asked. The clerk could call us if Chada should come. It's too hot. I wish there was some way we could sleep outdoors, Scotty objected. There is, Rick said. He walked across the street to where a half dozen garries were parked by the curb. Drivers and horses nodded sleepily. He held the nearest. How much for all night? The driver woke up and considered. Twenty rupees. I'll give you five. Allah! The sahib would rob a poor man. No less than eighteen. Eight rupees. Bismal! Fifteen! The bargaining closed at eleven rupees, and Rick grinned in satisfaction. Haggling over prices was a lot of fun. He directed the gari to the door of the hotel. Then he and Scotty climbed in and made themselves comfortable. The driver looked at his passengers, scratched his head, shrugged, and was asleep almost at once. Why don't we take a cat nap, Rick? Scotty suggested. We'll have to take turns staying awake in case Chada should come. Rick wasn't sure he could sleep, but he leaned back against the cushion, and in a moment his head dropped. Suddenly he jerked upright. Scotty was shaking him. Snap out of it, Rick. Here's Chada, said Scotty. What? Rick rubbed his eyes. I must have dozed off. And how? Scotty exclaimed. He swung to the ground. It's half past four. Chada was standing nervously, first on one foot and then on the other. I have found it, he kept saying. You tell the Professor Sahibs, yes? He said to Rick. I don't know about that. What do you think, Scotty? Well, we'd better not. You know how upset they are. We better see if the equipment is really there. Right. He motioned Chada into the gari. Scotty got back in and sat beside him. Tell the driver where to go, Rick said. Chada gave brief instructions in his own language, and the tired, bony horse started to reluctant life. They drove through the center of the darkened city, the clip-clop of the hooves and the creak of the wheels a background for Chada's tail. He had followed the Parsi to a public eating place, and he had waited while the man ate his supper. He ate so much. Then he went, and I followed. He walked very far, oh, very far, and he went down near the Alexandria Dock. Then he went into a place where there is drinks for drinking, and he sits by a table for so long, but I wait. He goes down many streets, and in many places where I am afraid, but I stay close. Soon he is coming to a big building, and I am looking in. Chada paused dramatically. And there are many boxes which have been on the truck. The gari had left the center of the city now, and was traveling through the winding streets that led to the waterfront. They neared a street corner, and Chada called to the driver to let them out. They left the gari and made their way down a series of narrow lanes edged with dark, forbidding shacks. The water was somewhere near. They heard the mournful wail of a boat whistle, and the sound tightened the short hairs on Rick's scalp. Chada was a noiseless wraith scuttling through the alleys, but Rick stumbled through debris and into obstacles that bruised his shins. Scotty made no noise except for the sound of his leather soles on the cobbles. 
The Hindu boy stopped. We are almost there, he whispered. We will go through the back way, so men do not see. What men? I think maybe guards. There are five or six men. Fine, Rick said hoarsely. Just two to one. That's not bad. We not fight. We look, Chada assured him. Let's keep going, Scotty urged. I'm anxious to see this place. There was a sound of water lapping against piers nearby, and it was very dark. Rick looked up at the sky through the narrow canyon of wooden buildings and saw that the stars were dimming. Dawn wasn't far away. A high building loomed, and Chada put out a hand to stop them. He led them to a window and said, You look! Rick looked through the dirt-smeared pane into a barn-like warehouse. Far in front were lights against which crates of goods were silhouetted. Against the lights, men moved, turbaned men with dark, shapeless robes. Then, as his vision adjusted, he saw a thing that he recognized, the antenna base in its open crate, silhouetted against the light. He gripped Scotty's shoulder. It's there. Scotty, I saw the antenna base. Good. Now what do we do about it? Get the police, Rick decided. We can't handle this alone. I saw at least six men. Chada, get some policemen and hurry. We'll stay here and wait for you, he added. I'm not going to take my eyes off that equipment again. Chada vanished into the dimness. Let's work around toward the front, Scotty whispered. I want to get a better look. So would I, Rick answered. They groped their way around the corner of the building and came out into another alley. Toward the front, there were other windows through which faint light streamed. Rick pressed close to the wall and edged his way toward the nearest window. They were almost at the front now, and the voices of the guards were audible. He was breathing hard through tight lips. If they were discovered before help came, it might go hard with them. The truck driver had been an example of the kind of people they were dealing with. He peered into the window, and Scotty looked over his shoulder. A huge crate blocked his view, and he stepped back. Not there. Maybe the next one. Scotty nodded and motioned for him to continue. Rick, his eyes on the next window, stepped forward, and his foot sank into something that gave way under him. There was an ear-piercing scream from under his feet, and he jumped back and fell against Scotty. They went down in a heap as a sheeted figure scrambled to its feet and ran down the alley, filling the night with cries of terror. Rick had stepped on a sleeping Indian. Scotty scrambled to his feet. Are you hurt? he asked hoarsely. No, Rick said. I'm... His eyes caught movement toward the front of the building and he yelled, Scotty, watch out! He jumped to his feet as his friend whirled to meet the rush of guards. He saw Scotty's hand lash out, held stiff, and he saw a road figure go down. Then three of them were almost upon him. Rick sidestepped the rush and lifted his foot as though punting a football. It connected with something soft and a cry of pain split the air. He jumped back and caught a glimpse of something flying toward him, blotting out the faint light. Then he was wrapped in the smothering folds of harsh foul cloth. Something hit him below the ribs and he went down on his back, stunned. He felt himself lifted and heard other cries and knew that Scotty wasn't down yet. He tried to lash out with his feet, but numbness gripped him and his breath came in short, painful gasps. Then there was only silence and the swaying of shoulders under him as he was carried into the warehouse. Many minutes passed before he came back to full consciousness.
gasping for air in the folds of the cloth that bound him. He heard voices, but they were not speaking English. Then he was put down on something hard, and the cloth was whisked away. He blinked up into the flame of a single candle and knew he was on the floor in some part of the warehouse. Men looked down at him, men with turbans and coarse dark faces. He struggled to a sitting position and saw Scotty next to him, flat on his back, eyes closed. Rick tried to get to his feet, but one of the men pushed him back. He saw the gleam of light on a blade as the man drew a curved, scimitar-like knife from the folds of his robe. He swallowed hard. The man lifted the knife and waved it expressively. Rick tried to take his eyes from the gleaming blade, but he couldn't. There was a chair next to the boy, a wooden kitchen chair sagging with age. The man lifted the knife again, and this time brought it down sharply. The keen edge sliced through the back of the chair as though the slab of wood didn't exist. It didn't even make a crunching noise. The man grinned and waved the knife again. He went out, taking the candle. The others went with him. The door closed and a key grated in the lock. Instantly, Rick was at Scotty's side. He put a hand on the boy's heart and found it beating strongly. He gave a sigh of relief and started probing for wounds. There were none. Then just above the bruise on Scotty's forehead, he found a lump. As he touched it, Scotty groaned and moved. Scotty, Rick whispered. Wake up, Scotty. He shook him a little. After a few moments, Scotty sat up and put both his hands on his head. Are you all right? I'm okay. What happened to you? One of them hit me with the flat of his knife. I thought I was dead. If they'd hit you with the edge, you would be, Rick gulped and told Scotty about the chair. That was to show me what would happen if we tried to get out. Well, I'm convinced, Scotty said. They inspected their prison and found it to be a small, square room, unfurnished except for the broken chair. Then Rick found a crack through which faint light streamed. He put his eyes to it and looked out into the warehouse. They were at the top of a flight of stairs. Below them was the big floor of the warehouse with its sack, crates, and bales. Not all of the stuff was theirs, but some of it was. Rick could see the wide entrance doors. The guards were squatting by it. He counted five men. Hadn't there been more than that earlier? Maybe some had left. Maybe they sent word to the boss that they captured us, Rick guessed. Yeah, but who's the boss? Conway, Rick replied. It was the only answer they had. There was a stir at the front of the building, and the guards got to their feet and began talking in low tones. Something's happening, Rick said. Chada came through the main entrance with two policemen. He came back with the police, Rick added joyfully. Scotty crowded close so that he could see through the crack. At the front of the building, the guards, the police, and Chada were engaged in loud conversation in Hindustani with much waving of arms. Why don't the cops arrest them? Scotty demanded. Because it's only Chada's word against the guards, Rick replied. Listen, we have to get out of here. Those guys will convince the cops that nothing is wrong. Scotty examined the door. Not very strong, maybe. Okay, let's try it, Rick urged. They backed across the room and put their shoulders down. Now, Rick yelled. They smashed into the door. It groaned on its hinges but didn't give. Let's go again. They hit it with the force of desperation. 
and the door flew open with a crashing of panels, and they were catapulted onto the stair landing in a heap. There were excited yells from below, and Rick and Scotty scrambled to their feet and saw the flash of knives. As they ran to aid the police, Rick saw one of the policemen dance away from a knife thrust. His wooden club flicked out and caught his opponent over the eyes. The man crumpled to the floor. Then, so quickly that he was a blur, the little policeman stepped in and swung again, and in seconds, the guards went down. But fast as the Bombay police were, they were outnumbered. Scotty went into the fight in a headlong rush. Rick gasped in horror as he saw a wicked blade lift high over his friend's head. He grabbed at a loose board and flung it with all his strength. The board whirled through the air and caught the knife wielder's uplifted arm and caromed into the second man. Then Scotty swung from the hip and the man with the knife crashed against the wall. Rick jumped for the board and lifted it, swinging it like a flail. Once a knife thrust dug splinters from his weapon and he brought it down on the head of his opponent. The board cracked and the man rocked, but his turban saved him. He lifted his knife and jumped for Rick. A brown leg was thrust out, and Chada kicked the man's feet out from under him. And then just like that, it was all over. One of the little officers stepped behind Rick's opponent and did something with his hands. When he stepped away, the man's wrists were neatly tied behind him. The other policeman was busy, too, with short lengths of rope. In a few minutes, all five of the guards were trussed up. In another ten minutes, the warehouse was cleared of men except for Rick, Scotty, Chada, and one officer. Their prisoners had been taken away in a police wagon that had appeared promptly. The lack of formality amazed the boys. They promised to appear with the American Council to press charges. And that was it. An officer was placed on duty in case the missing guard showed up. Holy smoke! i never seen anything happen so fast! Scotty declared. Rick was already busy checking over the crates of equipment. It's all here, he announced at last. What do we do now? Call the professors and have them get a truck. Wait, I have an idea, Rick turned to Chada. Could you get us a dozen garis? Can do, Chada promised, and he left at a run. We'll just pile it on the garis and take it back to the hotel. Won't the professors be surprised? We'll be flabbergasted, Scotty agreed, grinning. I am myself. Outside, it was almost full dawn. They went to the door of the warehouse and looked past the low sheds across the water. It was cool now, and the dawn breeze was fragrant. I'm kind of beginning to like India, Rick remarked. He was so relieved at having the equipment back that he could have done a war dance. There was a great rattle of wheels and pounding of hooves, as Chada appeared with a procession of garis. The Hindu boy sat up on the high seat next to the leading gari driver, his arms folded and his head as high as that of any conquering hero. The dozen gari drivers clustered around and there was much talk in broken English and Hindustani before Chada finally conveyed the idea. Then they boggled at the idea of doing manual labor, like lifting boxes. This, they proclaimed, with outraged indignity, was beneath them. Rick waved a thick wad of rupees, and the drivers reconsidered. Maybe it wasn't so far beneath their dignity after all. How many rupees extra did the sahib say? At last, with great tumult and excitement, the equipment was loaded into the dozen open carriages. Rick, flushed with victory, climbed to the driver's seat of the leading gari. Scotty and Chada rode in back, like princes of royal blood, as Rick and his 
laughing but slightly bewildered driver led the procession through the awakening, dawn-lit streets of Bombay to the hotel. Chapter 9. Chada Disappears The Garis drew up outside the hotel with a great confusion of neighing horses and shouting drivers. The doorman took one look and ran, appearing in a moment with the sleepy clerk. Rick assured the clerk that this was not an invasion, then joined Scotty and Chada. Well, now that we're here, where do we take the stuff? The warehouse, Scotty suggested. I don't know. I hate to let this stuff out of our sight. How about taking it into the hotel? Sure, then we could keep an eye on it. This idea was translated into action. To the night clerk's horror, the gari drivers fell to a will and toted the crates into the hotel, piling them squarely in the middle of the lobby. Rick, who had been outside pleading with the drivers not to drop anything, went into the hotel and stopped short at the sight of the equipment piled in the middle of the floor. Good night! He exclaimed. I didn't mean them to pile it right in the middle of the lobby. Why not? Scotty demanded. I'd like to see anybody steal it from here. The night clerk had both hands on his head and was shaking it, calling upon the sacred names of his Hindu gods to give him strength and wisdom that he might know how to deal with these insane sahibs. Despairing, he ran for the manager. Rick, Scotty, and Chada went out to pay off their gari drivers. There was the usual haggling, with Chada taking part, then Rick added an extra five-rupee note for each. Now, he said, I'm broke. Well, I still have a little money, Scotty said. Come on, we have to tell the professors about this. As Rick turned to go into the hotel, the manager and the clerk burst through the door, followed by Zircon and Weiss. The professors rushed up to the boys and anxiously asked if they were okay. Assured that they were, the scientists went back to check their precious equipment. Julius Weiss counted aloud, then satisfied that all the crates were there, he turned to the boys with almost tearful relief. Now, we want to hear all about it. Tell Hobart, and we'll go to your room. Hobart Zircon's voice rose as he argued with the irate manager, but on the professor's promise that the equipment would be moved very shortly, he quieted down and serenity reigned in the lobby once more. It was breakfast before their story was told. The scientists sat on Rick's bed and listened with open mouths. When the boys finished, the scientists exclaimed in unison, What would your father say if he knew we had let you go into a mess like that? The boys had been changing their clothes and getting cleaned up as they talked. Chada sat on the floor, his face one big smile. We have to get Chada a suit, Rick announced. And we promised to hire him. We promised. A promise it's a pleasure to keep. Zircon declared. He produced some rupees from his wallet and handed them to Chada. Here, my lad. Go do your shopping and get cleaned up. We'll talk about that job when you get back. Chada bowed three times, turned, and bumped into the door jam, bowed again, and fled down the hall toward the stairs. Scotty grinned. That new suit means a lot to him, and he certainly earned it. No, Julius Weiss suggested in high spirits. Let us repair to breakfast, gentlemen. I must admit, this excitement has given me an appetite. I feel neither Hobart nor I have eaten since the equipment was lost. Over breakfast, they held a council of war. I see no reason why we can't leave today, Zircon said. There are a number of things we have to do, however. Julius, will you see about getting the replacement parts? 
Also, the extra provisions and medicine we'll need. The company will expect you, so there should be no delay. Weiss nodded. I'll take care of our travel arrangements. Fortunately, it was all arranged by mail, so only a few details need to be cleared up. Rick spoke up. Scotty and I have to go with the American Council to the police to identify those men and press charges. Huh. Sirkan was thoughtful. That may take a little time. I'd hoped. A familiar voice accompanied by the scent of menthol interrupted. Good morning, gentlemen. May I congratulate you on your good fortune? Hendrik van Groot stood smiling at them, immaculate as ever in freshly starched whites, a mentholated tissue in his hand. The professors greeted him cordially and invited him to sit down. He beamed at Rick and Scotty. That was quite an adventure these men had. The manager told me about it. He turned to Zircon. Now you can continue your trip, eh? We leave today if we can complete the arrangements. If I can be of assistance, please call upon me. Zircon's brows furrowed. Perhaps you can, sir. I was just about to say when you arrived that Julius and I went to the Asiatic Geographical Union last night to see about our maps. And we met several of our Indian colleagues, Weiss said. Most interesting, but we were too late, and the vaults were locked, so we must get the maps this morning. Perhaps I could pick them up for you. I know the people at the Union very well. In fact, they have prepared maps for me several times. That would be most kind, Sir Khan said. Von Groot reached into an inner pocket and produced a pen and notebook. Perhaps you had better write a note giving them permission to turn the maps over to me. Of course. Sir Khan scrawled the note and signed it. Now I think everything is arranged. Thanks to Hearts and Brant's foresight, we don't have much to do. Then he added grimly, I feel that we'll be much safer on the trail. As Van Groot departed, Julius Weiss said, It was most kind of him to offer to get the maps. I'm sure he's thoroughly reliable. We have a number of mutual acquaintances, he tells me, and he is a member of the Netherlands Academy of Sciences. The morning passed in a fever of activity. Rick and Scotty went to the police court, accompanied by the obliging counselor secretary. The warehouse guards were brought in, identified and charged, but none of them would talk. To all questions, they presented a stolid, silent front. Nor would they admit knowing Conway. There was nothing in the police files of a confidence man by that name. Rick left the station with a feeling of frustration. We don't know any more than we did before, he complained. Then he gave a little shudder. When I saw those guards in the daylight, it scared me to death. I never saw a tougher-looking bunch. Gave me a queer feeling, too, Scotty admitted. We're lucky we didn't get our throats cut. Back at the hotel, Professor Zircon was waiting. He had made arrangements for train compartments and travel permissions without difficulty. The train was to leave at 2 o'clock, and it was already after 11. Julius Weiss returned. The provisions and equipment were to be delivered to the train. There had been no difficulty. He had been expected. Then Chada appeared. He came to the door and smiled and bowed, and they bowed back, not recognizing him at once. I am Chada. Have you forgotten? He said. Rick let out a whoop while the others stared in amazement. Chada was dressed in spotless white linen with a white shirt and a bright yellow tie. 
On his formerly bare feet there were shoes and yellow socks. He was scrubbed until his brown face gleamed, and on his head was a turban of white and yellow threads. He looked more like the son of some fabled Maharaja than the beggar boy with a world almanac education. As Rick and Scotty and the professors shook hands with him solemnly, he almost burst with pride. Now I will be your number one boy, he announced. In the midst of packing, Van Groot arrived with a map case under his arm. They gathered around him in the professor's room. Chada, praying inquisitively, passed Rick's arm. Sorry that took so long, Van Groot apologized. He wiped his face with a mentholated tissue. The man in charge of the vaults had gone off on an errand, and I had to wait until he returned. Let us look at them, Weiss suggested eagerly. Zircon took the case and thumbed through several maps. This is the important one. The section from the last Tibetan town to the plateau. He unfolded the map and spread it on the bed. Instantly, six heads were bent over it. Ah, Van Groot said, they have chosen the very best route for you. I know it well. The other trails are almost impossible for yaks and donkeys. I don't see Mount Everest, Scotty commented. It's not on here. Our trail takes us well away from Everest. We may not even see it, Zircon answered. Chada tugged at Rick's sleeve and motioned with his head toward the next room. Rick followed Curious, and Scotty joined them as the professors and Van Groot launched into a discussion of the route. In the boys' room, Chada said, When I was in Nepal, I heard much from the sahibs who were making climbs to Tibet, and always they were making talks about places not on those maps. What do you mean, Chara? Rick asked. The path is not how these sahibs in Nepal say they went to Tengi Bu. Rick and Scotty exchanged glances. Maybe not, but there must be more than one way to get to the plateau, Rick replied. The Asiatic geographical people just picked one you hadn't heard of. Sure, Scotty agreed. I do not think so. Chada insisted stubbornly. The path on the maps is maybe the wrong way. But you don't know that it is, Scotty objected. I do know, Chada replied with dignity. Rick saw the further argument would hurt the boy's feelings. Well, maybe you're right, Chada, but I don't think Professor Zircon would want to change the route without proof. He was saved from further discussion by a loud knocking on the door. The manager stood there and he was wringing his hands. Please, Sahibs, you come, yes? Those Gadi drivers, they are making a ruin of my hotel. You come, please? Right away, Rick said. He started to ask what drivers, but the distraught manager ran ahead down to the lobby. Everything seemed quiet there, barring the presence of the crates in the center of the floor. Outside, you will see, the manager said. The boys hurried to the front entrance and stopped short at the site that made it difficult to keep a poker face. The Gari drivers had taken up quarters in front of the hotel. Rick's large tip had seemed to them a promise of more rupees from the generous sahibs. Their families had joined them. One group was cooking a meal over a fire in a charcoal brazier right in the front door. Little children were running around happily. Some of the drivers were asleep. Scotty pointed and Rick looked over to where one of them was being shaved by a barber called in for the occasion. There were so many that they blocked traffic, and the din was appalling. The professors in Van Groot appeared and looked out at the confusion in the street. 
Zircon came to the manager's rescue with an order to the drivers to load the equipment at once. In a few moments, order was restored. The equipment was piled in the garries, and their personal baggage was brought down. Then, at a word from Zircon, the party piled into the carriages and started for Victoria Railroad Terminus. Rick looked around at the nearest garries and asked, Where's Chata? In one of the other carriages, I guess, Scotty answered. Must be, Rick said, and settled back to enjoy the ride. But at the railroad station, Chata did not appear. The equipment was loaded into the spare compartment, and one of the station guards was detailed to watch it. The gari drivers were paid off with the usual confusion, and the party took stock. Well, that seems to be everything, Zircon said. Chad is missing, Rick reminded him. I dare say he'll show up, Van Groot said. Perhaps he had some unfinished business. He smiled. The little beggar seems to be a man of affairs, don't you think? Rick didn't like the patronizing tone. I don't think he would have gone off without saying something. He likely missed us at the hotel, Zircon suggested. Or he may have gone off for something to eat. I'm sure he'll show up. We ourselves had better eat, Weiss said. You know these Indian trains. It will be several days before we can get a decent meal again. You shall be my guests, Van Groot announced. He waved the ever-present methylated tissue. Now, gentlemen, no refusals. We will have lunch at the coffee club on Churchgate Street. He hailed a taxi and the party climbed in. Rick kept watch for Chada as they drove down Hornby Road toward Churchgate, but there was no sign of the boy. He'll be waiting for us at the train. He wouldn't take a chance on being left behind, Scotty said. Van Groot was an excellent and interesting host. He told them tales of the Tibetan country and of the people. They're Buddhists, he said, and most faithful to their beliefs. Can't even swat a fly because harming anything, even a centipede, means the loss of merit in the next world. Quite touching after a fashion. He told them tales of Lhasa, the forbidden city of the Dalai Lama, where unfortunately their travels would not take them. Before any of them realized it, their time was up and they had to hurry back. The taxi pulled up at the barn-like railroad station, just as the warning whistle blew. Rick looked around for Chada. He ran to the nearest official and asked if anybody had inquired for the American party, but the man didn't understand English. Hurry, Rick, Zircon called. The shrill whistle gave a long blast. Rick ran for his compartment, past the second and third class carriages, past bearded passengers, hooded Muslim women, ragged Hindus and uniformed colonials, and passing goats that traveled with their owners, and chickens in crates, and water carriers with goat skins. But there was no sign of an erect Hindu boy in a new white suit. Rick climbed into the compartment and said desperately, He's not here! Van Groot stood on the platform, holding a tissue to his nose to guard him from the dust of the station. I don't imagine you'll ever see him again, he remarked. These little street boys are like that. Most undependable. Well, bon voyage. Best of fortune and all that. The train jerked and began to move. Van Groot lifted the riding crop he carried in a gesture of farewell. Zircon leaned over and closed the compartment door. Rick started to protest but realized the uselessness of it. They couldn't wait for Chada. He went to the door and looked back along the platform, seeing the figure of Van Groot slowly recede. 
Then suddenly there was a smaller figure in white running along the platform. It was Chada. He was running for all he was worth, and he was shouting something Rick couldn't hear. Stop the train! Chada's here! Rick yelled. The little figure in white came even with Van Groot and started to pass him. Rick saw Van Groot's riding crop go up, then lash down. Chada's running legs faltered, and he fell face down on the platform. <laughs> <laughs>